This week, we welcome Michael Goldgoff, Vice President Data, Network, and App Security Product Marketing at Barracuda, to discuss the state of industrial security in 2022. In the leadership and communication section, how CISOs can prepare for new and unpredictable cyber threats, eight leadership and management principles from ex-Navy SEAL, practice transparent leadership, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. It's time to rethink how we approach cybersecurity because the reality is modern cyber attackers are already past your initial defenses. ExtraHop helps your security team find and eradicate advanced threats before real damage is done. Protect your enterprise and customers with better defense. Learn more about how ExtraHop stops advanced threats at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's extra H-O-P. Cloud security compliance doesn't have to be complicated. Whether your business is migrating to the cloud or a seasoned cloud service provider, Bar Advisory can help you simplify security and compliance frameworks, including SOC, ISO, and HITRUST. As an extension of your team, Bar specialists will put your people first and empower them with the knowledge and tools needed to stay secure and compliant at every stage of your business growth. Learn how Bar can help your company build trust with consumers and become cyber resilient at securityweekly.com forward slash bar advisory that's b-a-r-r advisory i am your host matt alderman from living securities headquarters in austin texas now why am i at living securities headquarters so those that missed my linkedin post update this weekend will realize that friday was my last day at cyber risk alliance but i am still doing my podcast and today is day one is vice president of product at living security so i am here onboarding but still doing the podcast live from our headquarters in Austin. Joining remotely are my co-hosts. First, Mr. Jason Albuquerque. Welcome, Jason. Hey, hey, Matt. It's good to be back. I was off last week on a little PTO. It was uh, my anniversary, so we spent a little time together as adults with no kids. It was nice. Nice. (laughs) Did I surprise you with my announcement? And uh, when you got back, you're like, wait a minute. Like last week, he was... (laughs) No, congratulations. Happy onboarding day to you, my friend. And hey, you want to know what? I just realized tomorrow, my Patriot rookies report to training camp. It's about that yeah, time again. It is time for football, boys. Also joining me from just up the road, a little northwest of downtown Austin, Texas, is my second co-host, Mr. Ben Carr. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Matt. Hey, congratulations on the uh, the new gig. Good to good to be back with you. Last week I was out in uh, Boise, Idaho, doing. Little company event, little sales kickoff, and some whitewater rafting. So, yeah, good, good to be back. Nice. It's good to have you both back. Jason, I put an article in there just for you, buddy, because I, I know you like that leadership uh, article I you put in there. You know my style. I do. <laughs> do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover on one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions often and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. This segment is sponsored by Barracuda. To learn more, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. 
Mike Golgoff is Vice President Barracuda, focused on the company's data protection, network, and application security products. Mike has broad technical and industry knowledge that spans information security, networking, and telecom. Michael, welcome to Business Security Weekly. Thanks, Matt. It's good to be on the show. And congrats on your new job, too. Thank you. Yeah, time, time to get back in the industry. I think, as a lot of listeners know, I've been doing the podcast almost four years when I went to Security Weekly. And, you know, I, I miss building stuff. I'm an engineer by trade. And so it was time for me to get back in the industry and, and build product. We're doing some interesting things over here, which people will learn about soon enough. But good to have you on, Michael. This is a very interesting topic for me. In the state of industrial security. And my background quickly, you know, I started my first job uh, was in nuclear power. I spent seven and a half years in the nuclear power industry, spent about six months in oil and gas. So I'm very familiar with some of these systems. Uh, We spent a lot of time when I was at Tenable uh, focused on aspects of operational technology and ICS systems. A lot has uh, evolved from a security perspective, but Michael, my guess is from actually applying those security principles maybe we haven't made as much progress? Yeah, that's uh, definitely true, Matt. And um, and it's unfortunate because um, the threat environment just keeps getting worse and worse. And uh, of course, you know, uh, in, in today's uh, geopolitical environment, um, you know, everybody's concerned with these attacks on industrial infrastructure. Yeah, so let's start. You, you guys went out and did uh, a research study around this. There's some kind of high-level kind of key facts that came out of the research. Why don't you start there? Like, give us a quick overview of the hypothesis and why you did the research, and then some of those top-line um, kind of highlights from the from the results. Right. So what we wanted to do is to uh, do some more research around uh, industrial infrastructure specifically, industrial uh, IoT uh, operational technology security. So we went out to uh, roughly 800 um, decision makers in this industry and uh, asked them a bunch of questions. And uh, what we found out, uh, first of all, uh, is that uh, 94% of industrial organizations uh, actually experienced a security incident over the last 12 months. So that's very concerning because you know, we're talking about specifically industrial organizations. So the, these are critical infrastructure, manufacturing, water supply, all kinds of things like that. And, uh, you know, n- not only did they experience uh, an incident, they had significant impact. On average, they were down for uh, two days. So this is definitely very concerning. So that's the first, uh, the first thing that we found out. And the yeah, second thing is kind of uh, more of a good news story, and that is that uh, just about everybody is in the process of improving their industrial security. They've got uh, either a security project underway or they're in the process of planning one. So they definitely realize uh, that they need to do something about this and are, um, are, uh, in the, and, and are doing that. And of course, there are solutions available. So uh, we, we got to uh, you know, keep our hopes up that things will get better. What I think is interesting about the first result set, right, 94% of organizations have experienced an incident in the last 12 months. Now, we've covered some of them in the news on the different podcasts, even on this show, right? We know about Colonial Pipeline. We know about some of those incidents, the the one down uh, in Florida, the water treatment plant right, right around the Super Bowl time. 
94% of 800 is like 700 or plus doing quick math, right? I mean, it's 750, yeah. 760 organization. Not all of those hit the news. So that means there's a lot of incidents happening that are not being publicized with an average downtime of two days. Now think about that for a second. Like how many millions of dollars does that equate to from a potential loss perspective just in the ones that you surveyed? Absolutely. Uh, the, these are these are very significant numbers. And, you know, when you think about being down for a day or two, um, uh, and, you know, typically people think of IT organizations and you can kind of work around it. But, you know, if your manufacturing floor is, uh, is, is down, then you can't be making things like, you know, uh, a while back we had um, uh, the... Um, the incident with the iPhone manufacturing, right? That like everybody knew that affected everyone. So the, the, the costs could be very, very high. And again, these are some of the critical infrastructure industries, uh, energy, oil and gas, which are very hot topic right now. And we really don't want those people to be down. We, uh, we, we, we need the energy and uh, other, other things that they're producing. Yeah, especially down here in Texas, it's really hot. I need that air conditioning, and otherwise, I'm going to melt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've spent some time in, in the utility space, uh, in the ICS space, both you know, working for a government organization and supporting these organizations as as an IT services provider. Um, you know, we're going from systems that back in the day were isolated systems, not as complex. You couple that what's you know the statistics that you just put out along with the pressures that are coming down on these businesses now, they have pressures for supplier connectivity, partner connectivity, persistent access, on-demand connectivity, uh, the ability to scale on the fly with who has access to these systems. They have sensitive uptime requirements, not to mention, hey, let's bring in support for a multitude of different protocols that aren't your traditional IT or, or security wheelhouse, right? I mean, you're talking about DNP3, you're talking about the IEC protocols, Modbus, you know, so all of this complexity coming down uh, on these organizations, it's that much more important to be able to have strategies and controls in place. Absolutely, Jason, I totally agree. And, you know, uh, th these are some of the things we asked about and found out, like, as, as you mentioned, the IT and OT are coming together. And, uh, it, you know, we found out that only 42% uh, of the organizations have any kind of segmentation between their IT network and their OT network, which means that your salespeople or your accounting folks can be actually having, uh, you know, they're in the same network as the, as the actual facility. So, um, you know, lots of things like that going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's scary, right? Because Jason, just like you, you know, at the plant, when I was working on nuclear power, those systems didn't touch anything else. They were completely isolated. It was all fiber. It was all deck net. It was, you know, VAC systems galore feeding the control room. But those connections and those have been, they, those doors have been open. And when only 42% have segmentation in place, that means 58% of these organizations, pretty much anybody has full access to to, to be on right. these networks that that's got to be a little scary if, if you're running a, a plant or a manufacturing facility yeah no absolutely in fact it's uh, the, the issue is that it's 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 very difficult to contain anything 
So once something gets on the network, if you don't have segmentation in place, very difficult to contain. And, you know, you mentioned nuclear. Well, at least in the nuclear industry, there are government regulations that actually require all this air gapping between Thank God that there are those regulations requiring air gapping between the, the you know the facility and uh, and and the rest of the network and there's security and all of that. In many of these other industries, uh, there are no regulations like that, and yet uh, it's still part part of critical infrastructure. So, yeah, yeah, concerning. Yeah, network segmentation was one of the big findings out of this report. Mm -hmm. The other one, which I want to talk about next, is remote access, because that's how the whole water treatment plant issue in Florida propagated. It was a remote access. Um, uh, I think it was just a, a, a plain username password that got compromised through an account takeover or something that allowed them to get in. So let's talk about the remote access side of this, because that was another big finding out of this report. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, as you mentioned, and it's very, it's very frequent. Right? In fact, Colonial Pipeline was remote access issue as well. So, um, yeah, so, so what we found out is that um, it's kind of double whammy because you've got, you've got organizations that allow um, unrestricted network access to even external players. And at the same time, they don't even require um, multi-factor authentication. So we found out that in the oil and gas industry, for example, 47% are in that situation. They allow full network access, even for contractors, and they don't have the multi-factor authentication uh, required. So this is a very high-risk situation. It's just an example of what's going on out there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in those instances, as as you mature as an organization, you want to start looking at controlling on-demand access, right? So times of access, how long they have access for, really getting down to those details. A lot of the progressive organizations that 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 I speak to are looking at that level, right? They don't want just right. persistent access all day, every day. They want to control the times of access and who has access and and really bring down role-based access controls as well. Absolutely, and so in in and I think the we're in a place where the the good news is situations uh, the organizations do realize that, but it isn't necessarily straightforward, right? Because as, as you mentioned before, there are machines, there are different interfaces, there are connectivity issues. How do you you know you you might have a a, a, a you know. PLCs, programmable, programmable logic controllers, controlling machines. How do you do MFA in this environment? It's not it's not simple. Right. Yeah, there's there's some new technologies out there that are trying to build these buffers um, between the IT networks and the OT networks, right? We've seen like IT to OT firewalls, for example, which we yep. do both some level of segmentation, but also remote access control. Right. And I think the scariest part is when you think about zero trust principles, right? Because it's all been about zero trust architectures. I mean, this is foundational. Limit you know, least privilege, limit access, multi-factor authentication. I mean, there, there's no zero trust principles in what you just described. It's basically full access, no MFA. So how would you ever put a zero trust network or, or any kind of zero trust principles in place at these plants without somehow abstracting out the kind of the dividing lines between the IT and the OT networks? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's complicated. In fact, we asked that specific question, do you have zero trust access? And only 1% have zero trust access of industrial organizations. So, uh, you know, 
Uh, part of it could be, you know, education and knowing about it, but part of it is complexity in, in implementing most of the zero trust access vendors uh, just really have built solutions for uh, IT organizations, not uh, OT uh, type um, organizations. You know, how do you connect this thing to a windmill or, or a manufacturing machine? Uh, it, it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a complex uh, thing, but definitely there are technologies to do that today. And so that's, that's, that's good that our organizations are, are realizing. And in fact, most of them do have security projects underway to improve the situation, which is, which is great news. Yeah, for sure. Um, third bullet point from the report. Lack of yeah. automation. Now, what do you mean by lack of automation? Because that term automation gets used in a lot of different contexts. So what is it yeah. about the industrial environment that lacks automation? Right. Well, yeah, that's a great question. And, and in fact, there is lots, there's typically full automation in industrial environments or a lot of automation, but but it's on the... Um, on on the sort of main business side, right? On the manufacturing side or whatever. We specifically asked about automation as it relates to security patches. How do you update your industrial machines and other things? You know, what is your process like of actually doing a, a security update? And are these security updates automated? And what we found out is that they're mostly not automated. And of course, when they're not automated, you may not be doing them frequently enough. You may not be uh, having a consistent process. And that's, that's what we asked uh, about as it relates to automation. And it almost seems, Matt, that uh, some of the uh, patches and updates were uh, kind of like reactive as opposed to proactive. You wonder how many of these patches are being done after they get hit uh, so that they know they need to uh, update as opposed to on a regular scheduled basis. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the basics around patching, right? Now, let, let's realize that patching some of these systems are not easy either, right? Because we're talking right. about potentially non-IT-based systems. So are there patches that can be applied easily to SCADA or PLCs or uh, types of these? But a lot of these also have management consoles that are traditional IT-based systems that are controlling some of these controllers, even there, the lack of patching and automation around patching there seems to be, I think, an issue of why some of these um, automation um, areas are lacking, I would imagine. Right, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and as, it, as it relates to that, um, you know, we found out that um, it makes a big difference of who does the patch. If the organizations tries to do it themselves, uh, only 40% uh, automation. If if they actually have a, a specialized service provider or device, device manufacturer do it, 75% automation. So, uh, you know, there are ways to do that and automate even that, in that environment. And those organizations that are more forward-looking there are, are, are realizing that that's, that's the best way to do that. There's a couple other things in this report that I thought were interesting. Um, we're going to talk about budgets in a second, but there's there's a question in here about the stage your organization is at when it comes to implementing industrial security. And when you look at the 16 critical infrastructure domains, we did a research project last year with InfraGuard around critical infra infrastructure resiliency benchmark, right? And we kind of stack ranked all the industries. 
What I find interesting is healthcare is way like 17% com- have completed some IIoT or OT systems, right? That's really low to me for an environment that's been regulated since HIPAA. Like that one, it wasn't that low in our research, Michael. So I'm, I'm, you know, there's just some interesting data here when you look at it. Like, why is healthcare so low? Maybe it was because of lack of budgets in the early days, but you would have expected finance, healthcare, energy, oil and gas, some of these really further along in their investments, but it doesn't look like that's the case. Yeah, no, uh, you're right. And and uh, I, I, I wouldn't guess why specifically healthcare um, is behind, uh, but, you know, I, I think um, some of the HIPAA things are against specific uh you know, in terms of uh, going after patient data and 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 things like that, then not necessarily uh, access to the equipment in a hospital and things like that. So I I, I think that again, um, just got to catch up there to make sure that that security is in place. Yeah, well, there is some good news in here. Spending is going up. I think that's good news. So and there's active projects going on in this space. What did the research say about where spending is going to go? And in kind of, you know, do we have any idea of the horizon? How long is this going to take to get some of these areas addressed? Yeah. So uh, it, 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 that is an interesting, um, interesting question. And so what I think what we found out is uh, that most of the organizations are either in a place where uh, they've implemented a project or more likely are in the process of implementing one. And so it, it's it's taking them a while to implement a security project. And we've um, actually asked a bunch of questions about that. We found out that 93% of the organizations have had a failed project on sort of on their journey to uh, industrial security. And uh, these projects have failed for a number of reasons. We again asked why, and some of them were uh, just it, it takes too long to implement. Uh, the the cost gets too high. Uh, there's there's too much complexity. Uh, maybe uh, th- there's no clear responsibility of who is implementing this project. So people kind of struggling to to get to get that done. But the other thing we found out, Matt, which is which is good news, is that for those organizations that have completed a security project, they have a very, very um, clear, so so uh, uh, the 75% of those organizations that have implemented a security project had no downtime. And remember, everybody has in the downtime in the security incident. So what one of the things we found is the security projects do work. They work for organizations. It is just, you know, uh, it, it takes them a while to implement it and uh, just got to struggle through some of these growing issues and make sure that they don't uh, go at it alone and they have the right partner in place to uh, to, to, to uh, implement a, the, the right project. So, so Mike, to so that Mike, point, what, what are the, some of the things, what are some of the trends that you saw <laughs> that made those projects successful? You know, you, you said you had a group of, of, of uh, the people that um, that that you looked at that responded. What, what was some of that criteria? What were the success criteria that they followed to make them have a better path? So um, we, you know, kind of dug in into a little more detail, and we uh, we asked about what are this what were this 
specific uh, attacks. And we found out it's a combination of web application attacks, um, you know, uh, actual, you know, things like uh, malicious external hardware, removable media, DDoS attacks. And then we've asked them about what type of technology they've implemented. And so uh, those, those that were successful implemented a balanced approach where they had kind of a layered security approach to this and they, they had protection against uh, most of these attack vectors. So you can't just protect against one thing, it turns out, because of the attackers will, will look for any kind of open door or window. You do have to have a comprehensive project that, that you, uh, that, that you uh, implement to be successful. Yeah, there's some interesting data in here, Jason, where it looks at things that have already been implemented and work pretty well. Right, and so you have things like antivirus and intrusion protection, mm -hmm. but app, web application firewall segmentation, anomaly detection, advanced threat protection, network traffic encryption are are some of the buckets that I, it looks like show up in this report, Michael. Of these are these are things that it, when they're implemented, they seem to be working to help protect the environment. So I, you know, th there is some guidance and kind of roadmap in here. Um, for, for listeners that, you know, are trying to get their arms around some of this. Yeah. And, and I would right. say some of that is going to be influence as well. I mean, you know, on, on BSW, we talk about, you know, having that strategy and that seat at the table. And unfortunately, in this segment of the industry, sometimes it's the way it's always been. It's kind of the go-to. And, 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 you know, unfortunately, we're in a time where that doesn't work anymore, right? And we, we, we need to mature and we need to progress. So, you know, uh, I would think having having those strategic conversations all the way at the top and really educating leaders of those organizations to, to make the necessary changes is super important as well. Support from the top. Right. But again, we have some specific I'm, recommendations I'm right, and where to start from, you know, things like fix your remote access, right? Make sure you have multi-factor, some other protection on, on remote access, you know, automate your security patches and automate that process, put in at least some rudimentary segmentation, uh, separate your IT from your OT network, uh, maybe look into micro-segmentation. So there are things that, that people can do uh, to start their journey and, you know, realize benefits more quickly. But so to your point earlier, the data would indicate that if you actually do these things and you start to take, you know, control of the security issues that you have, that it worked, right? It's not as right. if the investment spend gets input and there's no positive outcome, which you could understand why people wouldn't create that activity then. But my, my question really, uh, I, I don't know if this is rhetorical or I'm really looking for an answer, but if the data indicates that, why still the hesitancy, why the lack of effort to actually implement these controls when they are actually effective? That's, that's where I find it very confusing that, that we're not tracking to the data more, we're tracking to too hard, I, you know, I don't want to do it, I've got legacy reasons. Yeah. Well, we asked these questions again. You know, what we found out was the biggest the the the, the biggest reason was that uh, the project uh, like why did why did they fail? The project took too long, right? So what but what that's an indication is that maybe the organization wasn't committed enough to to actually see it to completion. Uh, the second thing was the the cost overruns, right? So it started to cost too much. And people again put it on hold or whatever whatever else happened, right? So we know why 
uh, these things happen and, and, you know, people just have to stick it out and, and see it to completion. Yeah, I mean, the challenge probably for some of these executives, a little bit to Jason's point earlier, is getting the seat at the table, making the justifications, and then getting through these with executive commitment to get through these projects, right? Because it's really easy to get distracted right now. Interest rates are up, inflation's up, I got to cut spending. Well, I'm going to cut that security budget over there. I'm going to put this project on hold. But if the data says, no, 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 if we stay the course and we get through this, we'll be in a better position. It, it's, it's really an executive communication and leadership discussion, I think, at this point for these organizations to be able to push through and finish some of these projects. Because if they do, they'll be in better shape. Right. Right, absolutely. I think you're you're right on there. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on Business Security Weekly. Thanks very much for having me uh, on the show. Appreciate it. It was great. To learn more about Barracuda or how to improve your industrial security, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. We're going to take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Right now, everybody is talking about cryptocurrency, and the criminals are hiding in the conversation. Cyber criminals use social engineering, loaded with urgency and fear, to successfully prey on your company, your employees, and your customers. Spear phishing is just one of 13 types of email threats. Barracuda has identified these 13 types and shows you how to protect your company, your customers, and your reputation. Find out about the 13 email threat types and Barracuda email protection. Get your free ebook at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. How have business drivers impacted your organizational risk? Simulate Extended Security Posture Management enables CISOs to know what parts of your cybersecurity portfolio to keep, what to get rid of, and what to buy. Know that your cybersecurity investments are optimized and can reduce cybersecurity risk. With Simulate, you don't assume you are secure, you know. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Simulate to learn more. Welcome back to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Jason Albuquerque and Ben Carr. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical training by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. All right, articles for the week. And I missed Jason and Ben last week. I, I put articles in here for both of you this week. I love I it. Asked Thank you, you so much. <laughs> I miss, we miss being here. <laughs> Glad to be here. Yeah, back. so this first, yes, it's good to have you back. So a CISO evolution. Now we've talked about the CISO evolution. Um, for a while now. And, and I, I was interested in, are we making progress? Because we see a lot of these articles, Jason and Ben, right? We see these, the CISO roles evolving. We're trying to be a seat at the table. We need to talk business value to security. And, you know, we, we talk about it, but is it actually happening? I guess that's the big question for me. Are you mm. guys seeing it? Yeah. I mean, well, number one, if, if, if the listeners get a chance to read the article, I, I love the backstory behind this. I mean, you know, the, the, the people who wrote the book 
Um, one of them was presenting at RSA and nobody showed up to the, to his talk except for one person. And what came out of it is they decided to write a book together about cybersecurity leadership because they started talking to each other. And I, I think that's just an outstanding story. Um, you know, as far as are we making progress, I, I think we are, but I think, you know, we're still realizing some of those struggles that we've continuously seen getting the seat at the table, influencing the C-level executives, really getting meaningful conversations with the board of directors or the CEO, and really breaking, um, you know, breaking down that barrier. And, and one of the things that was in this article that I loved was a focus on the art of negotiation, because I think sometimes we fall into the trap of sometimes saying no in, or being perceived as that department of no when really it's about getting to the outcome that we can all agree upon, right? So, you know, I, I think, I think uh, you know, trying to make this a little short is I think there's work to do on both sides. I think we as leaders need to do better at giving folks outcomes that align with our security program. And I think, you know, C-level executives, board of directors need to start seeing us as value add to the business. Yeah, we talked. Yeah, I think it's a little week. bit about I was just saying, okay. it's a little bit about push pull, right? I think yep. that you, sometimes it's about facilitating in ourselves, like the right re relationship, the right language, like you know, trying to figure out how to get involved in the business. And as you know, you so correctly said, you know, not being the department of no, trying to figure out how to get to yes, trying to how to win. Um, you, you called out uh, the the call out here to Chris Voss in here. I think, you know, he was a head negotiator for the FBI, right? Everybody should should read his book. Or you know, listen to it on a you know on a um, uh, download. I, I think it's it's a great insight into what really negotiation should be. But at the same time, I think I, I, Jason, I'm going to say I'm going to guess that you're going to be behind this 100. Like it, it's rough to get beat down all the time. I mean, once mm -hmm. you start feel like you're hitting your head against the wall every day and you're not getting anywhere to get that seat at the table or to you know get involved in the the rest of the business level discussion. It kind of takes a little bit of the wind out of, I think, a lot of our colleagues' sales sometimes and makes it harder to want to try to keep reaching for that that perfect state of, you know, where CISO should evolve to. And so I, I, I think we, you know, again, we need to meet the business at that at the business, but the business needs to invite us in. And I'm I just go back to hoping that some of this, you know, the the legislation and the requirements around board participation from a security side. I, I really hope that starts moving the bubble on this because if it doesn't, it's it's just a long road. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more, Ben. And and that's you know that's probably the 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 main reason why we see CISOs jumping ship so fast, right? I mean, are we still looking at the average tenure of a CISO being a right around that eighteen month mark? I mean, I see a lot of my colleagues you know, jumping ship within a year, you know, a year passes and all of a sudden I'm seeing a new LinkedIn update and, you know, they're at a new, they're at a new spot. So, yeah. you know, I'm assuming it's not the right fit and they're not, they're not gaining the traction that maybe they were promised during their interview or, or getting the support that they were promised during the interview. Um, you know, it, so, so yeah, I mean, the business needs to support us as well. And, and at the end of the day, you know, like I said, we have a responsibility as well. We have to build trust building trust within the organization uh, that creates influence. So it's, it's, it has to be both of those things working together.
Yeah, last week we were talking about building a culture of yes, because again, it goes back to this uh, perception is security is the department mm-hmm. of no. How do you create a culture of yes, yes, and you know how yep. do you make progress, right? And it leads into these first couple articles because it is about negotiation. It is about talking to the business about, okay, we can do it this way or we can do it this way or here's the risk. Like it, it is a, it's an active discussion and it's not just no and yeah. it's not necessarily just yes, but it's having the conversations to move things forward. And the, that's why I pulled in the second article because it talks a little bit about the resilience of your program and the flexibility of your program because maybe it's not this particular piece, but it's a variation of that capability that allows you because it works better for the business, right? And, right. and so having a flexibility and resilience in your program may put you in a better position to have those negotiation discussions with the business. Yeah. And, and you know, this next article is, is perfect because – they, they quote something, right? And it says here, CISOs often ask, but I've heard CEOs, CFOs, you know, leaders within organizations yeah. ask the same time of, same type of question all the time. How do I avoid being hit by the next major attack? Well, guess what? It's not predictable, right? And that, right. I think that's a good moral of the story is that we need to be able to start speaking toward business risk management, business resilience, because at the end of the day, if I go to the mall, I can't predict that someone's going to break into my car but I can have all of the, you know, the compensating controls in place. I can park in a good spot. I can make sure my alarm is set, all of those type of things. But we can't predict that. We have to have, you know, the strategies to make it so the risk goes down. That's what we need to be communicating to leaders is that we can't predict the next cyber attack. But what we can do is we can make our organization much more resilient and mitigate the risk. Right. And I, I think too... Too many people still, like you, you said it, it's both sides of the coin again, right? It's CISOs trying to articulate a position of we're going to do, we're going to protect the org and we're not going to get compromised. And it's the rest of the C staff like coming in and saying, what are, what are we doing? How do we get it? You know, how do we spend enough money to make sure we don't get compromised? Right. right. It's just not it. It's just not the question. It's not the, not the level of conversation that you should be having. The conversation should be you know, given the threat landscape and our, you know, risk tolerance, we're, we're essentially buying down the risk to a point where we think right. it's worth it if we get compromised, right? But it's really about what's the resiliency, what's the potential to get back on our feet quickly, how do we minimize the exposure and the the impact to the company after this happens? That's really the worth of the CISO is, is how calm are they? How do they respond under pressure? And how do they manage the crisis moving forward, right? And how do you get to recovery quickly? Yeah, it, what's interesting, you know, somebody's going to ask me eventually, like, okay, when you let, why'd you pick living security? And, but this is, this is one of the reasons I did, right? We know where the, some of the risk elements are. We know that our users are risky in certain activities. We know that that is the opening to the potential breach or ransomware attack, right? We don't spend enough time on aspects of this. It's the risk management disciplines that mm-hmm. are gonna be important moving forward, Jason. Where are my risky users? Because if I have more risk in that group of users, then what can I do from a compensator mitigating control perspective to protect those users if they do do something risky that doesn't put the business in place? And even if they do, what are all my reaction reactive controls to be able to be resilient and get back online quickly if it does happen, right? You have to be 
you have to play on both sides. You got to be on the proactive side and the reactive side. But without risk in the equation, how do you make the right decisions? Because you can't protect 100% of your employees all the time. That's right. You just you can't. It's impossible. And this this is exactly the conversation why I love being on the consultative side, right? I mean, this is the conversation I literally had with a, you know, 300 plus million dollar uh, construction organization sitting across from a CFO asking about cybersecurity. And one of the first things we needed to talk to him about was this is not a technology problem. This is risk mitigation. We're managing business risk. Let's have the strategic conversation. And, you know, lucky for us that that CFO had the insight to say, you want to know what? You're absolutely right. I want to do business with your organization. I want to hire Envision to come in here and help us with that level of strategy, right? It's, you know, I'm so glad we're starting to see executives like CFOs want to have these conversations, realizing it's not just a technology issue. Right. It's a people issue. It's more people than it is technology it, these days, right? I mean, that's the, that's the whole thing is if if people are the uh, are the biggest risk factor, then why aren't we spending more time helping the people? <laughs> yeah, it's people, it's process and then the technology, right? I right. mean, we you know, it sounds like we we really wear those terms thin, but that's that's really what it is, right? We need to make sure we're educating people, we're giving them the right processes and standards and procedures. And then, and then adoption of the technology. You know, I mean, I, I've said this my entire career. You can bring in a shiny new tool, but if you don't adopt it and you don't have processes and you're not using it, it's just an expensive shelfware. That's all it is. Yeah. We're going to get to that in a couple articles. I wanted to go to the eight leadership and management principles from Jocko, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you love this book. You've read this book. I mean, you, yep. you follow Jocko extremely well. Every time this, you know, this article pops up about well, once every year or so, and I pull it in because I know you love to talk about this one. I do. I do. Absolutely. No, this is, I mean, I love it when we can bring in military style leadership because honestly, um, you know, it's, it's, it breeds true leadership skills and strategies that we can really bring over to the corporate world. Right. Um, you know, number one, it's accountability and responsibility. You know, that's, that's such a huge piece in today's workforce. We need to be taking responsibility for what falls into our, our teams, whether it's, you know, they, they go on and say, manage upstream and manage downstream up the chain of command, down the chain of command. We need to feel responsibility in our organization to, to, you know, take the bull by the horns and start, um, you know, start making progress. A le- leadership isn't a, a title, right? It's, it, it's action. Being a leader is, you know, you hold a level of accountability and responsibility within your organization. You want to go in and get things done. So, you know, I, I, I love these articles. Um, you know, it's, it's belief, it's belief, belief in your team as a leader, you need to be able to articulate what the vision is, why we're doing, why is such a huge piece. Employees want to know why they're doing things, right? It's not just the what, why are we here? Why are we doing what we do? Why is our business, you know, here when, why do we exist? Why am I working so hard every day? Sometimes 15, 16 hours, What's that outcome that we're trying to achieve as a business? Yeah. Uh, you know, the big one for me is being decisive with uncertainty mm-hmm. and executing, right? Because yes. remember, in the military, there are times you are disconnected from command. You're going to have to make decisions and execute yes. against those decisions. Make those decisive decisions. The one thing that, you know, in, in our industry right now, you see lots of startups, indecisiveness 
is like the killer of innovation and yep. in startups. It is the absolute killer because as soon as you wait to make that decision to execute against it, one of your competitors is going to go right by you. Right? 100%. And as, and as leaders, you have to be able to make a decision, execute. If it's the wrong decision, fail fast and move on. But yeah. sitting there for six months to make a decision about, ah, should I do this? Should I do that? You're just killing yourself from an innovation yeah. standpoint. And your competitors are going to catch you or pass you. And, and, and you want to know what, Matt? The foundation of that and decentralized command and, and being able to make decisions on the fly all lends to number eight. Discipline equals freedom. That means you have the standards, processes, procedure, the discipline to get things done. When you can empower your staff to make those decisions on the fly because they know standard operating procedures, they know the processes and the appetite of the organization, they know what processes they should be following when, and it's like the back of their hand, they're empowered to make decisions on the fly. Right. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Next article, practice transparent leadership. I'm a huge proponent of this for anybody who doesn't yeah. know me. Like <laughs> transparency is what I'm all about to the point where some days it might actually burn you, but I'm always <laughs> going to be transparent only because I think it's to me as a leader, being open and honest and having transparent conversation builds the trust you need to build your team and get them to the point where the previous article kicks in, right? <laughs> where they can right. make decisions. Right. They can create um, that freedom because they're confident in the decisions they're making and then we, the organization can move faster. It starts with being transparent, being open and honest and having these conversations. It's so foundational to the cultures that I look for when I go into organizations or when I'm looking for a new job. These are key elements for me because that's how you build that initial trust. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's having the healthy relationships with your team, right? And in order to have the healthy relationships with your team, they need to trust you. And, you know, trust is, like I said, trust is that foundation of a relationship and influence and, and the ability to influence. And if you're not being honest and you're not being open, uh, you don't allow for people to, to ask questions and, and you're commanding from upon high. Uh, you don't provide people with access to the right information at the right time. You're not involving your team in the decision making. You're not going to gain that trust. Therefore, you're not going to have that influence. You're not going to have those relationships. And then it's going to create a toxic environment. Yep. Which impacts number five, how to move from strategy to execution. Three out of five organizations fail on the execution side. And part of it is because of poor leadership, which is why these articles are kind of stacked in the order that they're stacked this week, is it's that leadership and the ability to have the right resources and the right processes to actually move from strategy to execution and deliver on those goals. And, and that's why these leadership discussions are so important when you think about how do you move an organization from one stage to the next? Because at the end of the yeah. day, it's about executing against your plans. 100%. And, and, and honestly, it's, yeah. it's hiring the right mix of folks as well. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever read the, uh, the book. It's called Jet Fuel. Um, but it's about, you know, it's about the CEO and the chief operation officer, um, yin and yang, right? And you have, you have the visionary and then you have the, they call it the integrator. Um, and they thrive together when that relationship is strong. The visionary has their strengths, but they also have their weakness. 
And yes. weakness is execution, right? Where yeah. on the other side, an operational person, their strength is execution. And they empower the visionary to be a visionary. You know, so I think I think having the right people in the right seats in order to make sure you have a good strategy, because that's in this article, have a good strategy. Part of that strategy is the people that you have to build the plan and execute against the plan. And you got you got to have to believe in the people and empower them. Right? You have to empower the team to actually execute. I mean, I've seen that a lot where, you know, people either one, they don't set out the vision that everybody's aligned to and they know where they're marching. So you got people headed in different directions. Or two, they're not actually empowering the people to make the decisions yep. to, to yep. get the actual work done, and that'll that'll just break a team. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's that's some of the the roadblocks that in that book you read about. It's about the visionary still wanting to hold on to the execution, but not not do, being able to do it well because you can't be the visionary and execute at the same time and do it effectively. Right? It's like you're juggling too many balls and you can't do them all well. So it's yep. that's some of the roadblocks and some of the failures that you see. Is, is making sure you're focused on the right areas and you have the right people focusing and trusting them to execute. This is why your leadership team is very important. You brought up a very good point, Jason, right? Is I need somebody that's a visionary and then somebody that can execute. When you have two visionaries or two executors, you're, you're missing Messy. a piece. You, right, <laughs> you need the yin and the yang, right? Because I've seen organizations struggle yes. where you have the top two leaders both as visionaries and nobody's executing under the covers, right? Like that is a huge concern, right? Or yeah. you can have people that are just executors and nobody's thinking about, okay, who's going to take us out? Who's, where's our adjacency market? What's our next yeah. move? And then your competitor just blows right by you, right? You need That's both right. the visionary and the execution side. You have to, and you have to allow for that freedom of, um, uh, of opinion, let's say, because, there are so many instances where you have a visionary who, who sweep in and say, I have these five great ideas and we need to institute them and we, you know, we need to build these offers around these ideas. And if you don't have that balance to say, hey, number one, is there market demand for this right now? Can we make money off of this right now? Right? I mean, because visionaries think big, they think long, they think far out. And, and yeah. sometimes it's not the right moment for some of those visions. And you have to be comfortable to say, let's table that till next year and take a look to see if there's even a market for this right now. Yep. Yep. Conversations I'll be having this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love this next article from Gartner. Now, normally, yeah, I don't pull in these trends very often because I don't mm. like these like, hey, here's what's going to happen in 22. And, you know, my... Okay. my right. it, this is a little longer range, and there's some interesting data in here. And when I started reading through these, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So take like number three, 60% of organizations will embrace zero trust as a starting point for security by 2025. More than half will fail to realize the benefits. Now, think so about that for a second. Yeah, that's scary as hell, right? 60% of organizations will buy into the concept of zero trust and half of them will fail to realize the benefit. Right. So you have the 40% who didn't buy in and half of the 60 are failing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Scary. Exactly right. So holy cow. Um, I thought the, the, the privacy rights will cover 5 billion citizens by 2023. Now think about that again. Conversations I've already started having here around PII and privacy data and 
What do you share and what don't you share? These are things you know, CISOs and risk officers have to think about. The privacy side of this is going to be more and more intense when 5 billion citizens are covered by something like a GDP um, or GDPR. Like, that's a big number. That, that yeah. changes the way you think about data and what you're collecting and what you're using. Those have impacts to businesses. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on overregulation, but to Ben's point earlier, we, we definitely need the catalyst to get our C-level executives and board of directors thinking about this because it's just not, it's not happening organically. So my hope is that it's not overbearing, but it's enough to make, because I, I don't want it to become a check in the box world, right? We know that fails. We know that for a fact. Check in the box fails. But we yep. need to have balance there where it's going to be motivating enough to make board of directors implement plans and invest. There, there's just these, there's, I, I can go on. Six, by 2025, 60% of organizations will use cybersecurity risk as a primary determinant in conducting third party transactions and business engagements. If you're in the financial and healthcare space, you should already be at that number exactly. because they're regulated. <laughs> but right. it's going to take us that long to get everybody else to 60%. Yeah, I know. I know. Like these, yeah, I mean, it, just, again, you're enough. absolutely correct. This, this should be, uh, some of these things should be table stakes already. Yeah. Um, I do like the last one. By 2026, 50% of C-level executives will have performance requirements related to risk built into their employment contracts. Now, think of, we've been talking about the board, been talking mm -hmm. about having cybersecurity expertise on the board. But when you make part of their compensation and their employee contracts tied to risk, that'll also change how people perceive cybersecurity going forward. It's a really interesting stat that if you can get this embedded into the C-level contracts, employee contracts, that yeah. also has a big influence on how cybersecurity gets funded and deployed moving forward. But we got to wait until 2026 I, to even get <laughs> half of it there. Well, my, my hope I was going to say, I, Matt, I've been saying that, this for a long time. Incentivize the behavior that you actually want. When you think about security and you go out and you talk operations teams, most operations teams, like in an IT environment, have traditionally been incentivized upon uptime and reliability, right? And so if yeah. you look at you know, a security initiative coming in and impacting that reliability or that uptime, it's seen as a detractor to their performance incentive. When you start changing the way the performance incentives are aligned, all of a sudden you see the behavior you actually want to actually have happen suddenly starts to manifest itself. So I, I think this one's great. I, I would love to see people align more towards the output that we're looking for. Yeah, I, I think the only thing that would make this stat a little bit better if it was 80% and then focused on the CEO, right? Because I think yeah. I, this yeah. is this is generic to C-level executives. I'd right. love to see a, see a statistic that said 80% of CEOs compensation plan are going to be around, you know, cybersecurity focused performance. You know, that, that, that'd be good for me. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Yeah, I want for the, sure. I want the top leader to be accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, at the C level, you could say, well, it's written into the CISO contract. Yeah. Hopefully well, it's not the CISO because <laughs> that's just a miss. Like, <laughs> like good luck. I, you know, I just, I, I don't like, I don't like the scarecrow from the wizard of Oz. And you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, executives have the ability to say, well, you want to know what that CISO said? No. Or the CFO said no. Or you, you know what I mean? Like I, I just don't want the scarecrow from the wizard of Oz to happen. Um, I want central accountability. 
That's Nirvana. Ultimately, for me. the IMH, if, if it's your top level risk as an enterprise, then the CEO really needs accountability. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think to your point, Jason, it'd be nice if we could get 50% of CEOs to have it in their employee contract by 2026 right. and right. not all C levels because we, we'd probably be in better shape than just the C levels if the CEO had it in their employee contract. 100%. Yeah, for sure. Uh, last article, you, you know, we, we're still going through some interesting hiring. It, it, this is a list of do's and don'ts from a hiring perspective, right? We've talked about this before, but I think it's interesting. Now that I've changed jobs, I'm going through this list going, yep, yep, yep. Like these are right. the things I did. Like these are the things I'm evaluating as I was looking at opportunities, right? What's the scope of the role? What's the culture mm -hmm. and mission like? Like these are important things that... I, as someone who, who was looking for a job, is I'm looking for, and these are tips and guides for employers to say, these are the things you need to make sure are clear as part of the posting because you want alignment here, right? Yep. You don't want somebody to come in, you, you know, you've got a culture that's this and, and they're over here. Like you want alignment when you're out searching for these people. And I, I, it was funny because I was going through this and I'm going, these are all the questions I'm asking. When I'm yeah. out looking, like I want to make I, sure I have 100% alignment with these. I love that you brought this article in because when I read it, uh, you know, our we have a sister company called KLR. They have executive search as part of uh, you know one of their one of their offers, and we were helping a mutual customer, uh, a large bank in in Connecticut, and they're looking for a CISO. So they brought me in to help augment their executive search team to really build out that job description while they're looking for their executive search, you know, while they're going through the executive search process and looking for the CISO. So many of these items we talked about, right? And, and you know, working with the chief risk officer, listen, this isn't your Nirvana wish list. Totally seriously was uh, a conversation that we had. Let's make it so you're getting good applicants. Let's make sure we're getting good people at the table, right? Um, you know, don't, don't list every certification in the book as a requirement. I mean, that was another one. Nice to have. Sure. Shouldn't be a requirement. These lists and lists and lists of certifications. Right. So this, this totally aligns with the conversations that, that we're having today, uh, you know, about, about hiring at the executive level. Yeah, absolutely. Ben, any final closing thoughts? Is your audio up? <laughs> He's been having some issues. No, I was. Uh, I, no, I, I was thinking. You know, look, you, you hit it. I, I think you've really got to be tailored to what you're actually looking for a role. And uh, you, Jason, you mentioned it. Like, it, it can't be everything, right? It's got to be right. the things that are really important to you. You have to target it. So, um, and don't be afraid to bring somebody in who has the, the potential for the talent, but not necessarily, maybe necessarily the. Dead on, Ben. Dead on. I love, I love that you just said that, Ben, because one of the things I said to the chief risk officer was, do you have the appetite for this person to grow into this position? Right? And that was a yeah. main focus right there because they had Nirvana in this job description before it was released. And one of the main things was, do you have the appetite to let this person grow into that? And, and I would yeah. also say like, you know, if you have Nirvana in your job title, you better have Nirvana in the uh, pay scale. Compensation, right? like, no doubt. It's not aligned, right? Like what you're asking for is not what you're, pay you're paying. <laughs> you know it. You know it. 
Yes, interesting times on the compensation discussion, but for another time. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. We'll see you next week. I'll be home on Business Security Weekly.